Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we want to tackle an investment topic, and we want to talk about ESG. ESG investing is, uh, it's not new. It's been around for a while. It's also been around in uh, previous formats and different names in the past. Uh, But it's an important topic because I think every investor and I think every investment firm needs a well thought out answer to the question, do you invest in ESG funds? Do you allocate your portfolio uh, to, to ESG in any way, shape or form? Uh, and we do have a guest on the podcast this week. We have Rusty Gilbert with us. And uh, we're excited to hear from Rusty's perspective on all things ESG. And uh, he's had a uh, long, excellent career in the oil and gas space. Uh, so with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you, Rusty. Uh, would love to hear a little bit about where you're coming from and what does your background look like? Yeah, Justin, thanks a lot for that. Uh, I'm currently living in Houston and I've got an energy advising firm called Jared Gilbert Energy, and uh, it's it's a broad space, right? Energy, it's it's uh, not only for renewables and transitional energy, but also oil and gas and the ESG topics, which we'll uh, cover today. Uh, I've worked um, in tech, in the technology field uh, a lot of my career. I worked in uh, tech ventures uh, at the at the end of uh, my career before I started up this advising service and i've worked in uh, upstream which is basically you know finding oil and gas deposits uh not only in the united states but but around the world onshore and offshore and had a brief stint in the department of environmental protection back in my home state of new jersey thanks that's fantastic and uh with that being said we'll just dive in so i'm really excited to just get your thoughts on a handful of different questions pertaining to esg um, so to kick it off, short term, long term, is ESG a net positive or negative? The best way to answer that, it, it's a net positive, both short and long term. Uh, everyone has to be uh, concerned about ESG, the environmental impact, the society effects, and uh, of course, the, the governance to make sure it, it happens. I think where you know some groups start to deviate is, is perspective. And how much, you know, are they are they all in? Are they partially in? And what are the uh, financial implications and economic implications for the decisions associated with ESG? Absolutely. And uh, I'm interested in your perspective and some of the work you do now, uh, just in terms of how does a company hit ESG metrics, and and what what does it take? Why are some oil and gas companies in the club, they're in ESG. You look at an ESG index, they're in the index. Why are others out? Uh, so how hard is it to hit ESG metrics? What all companies are, are grappling with right now, both in oil and gas and, and outside, but if we maybe we focus on the energy side uh, for that question, the, the European country uh, companies were, were actually, you know, maybe a little bit ahead of the game, uh, in part based on the policies 
that they had in place and and the initiatives that they had in place. I, I think the U.S. companies are catching up that maybe they've they've actually called up to the European companies relative to the to the focus on on improving their ESG metrics. We have a lot of different energy companies right in the United States and uh, both big and small and, and in between and and they're all different. Uh, they have different. Uh, philosophies and cultures. Uh, I, I think the the larger companies, you know, balled in a bit early compared to maybe some of the other companies, size companies. But but there's some leaders and there's some followers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you think that you, you know you see some U.S. companies, some European companies adhering to ESG more than others? Do you think we're ever going to see Russia, China, Saudi Arabia? Uh, come close to adhering to different ESG metrics. Those countries you, you mentioned, they're, you know, in my, in my view, right, and and in some of my peers, they're talking the right game, but they're not actually, you know, doing what they probably need to be that that needs to be done, and they're they're doing it at a different pace than what's occurring in the United States and what's what's occurred in. Uh, you know, say in Western Europe, some of those countries are doing a little bit better job than others, but but many of them uh, are not adhering to the metrics that the U.S.-based and Western European countries have, uh, you know, laid down. So it's a little bit uh, of an unfair playing field right now with, with who's doing what. And uh, to some extent, I think, you know, the U.S. companies are uh, having to foot the bill at a, at a higher cost to to find and produce when some of these other countries are kind of ignoring what ESG metrics have been established in a country like the United States. Certainly, and I'm curious when it when a company is trying to hit metrics. Obviously, uh, a a large publicly traded company has a big incentive to be in an index, and so if if iShares or if anyone is making an ESG index. There's certainly an incentive for every company to try, try to get in, but with that ESG metrics that they're that they're having to pass, how much is on the E? How much is on the S? And how much is on the G? Yeah, uh, well, it, you know, it kind of varies by by company, I think, and and by the company's culture. But I think in general, right? And and I've I've worked within these companies uh, for a long time, and worked with these companies for a long time. I think they were always in. They were never really out. Now there, there's some exceptions to that with some smaller operators that uh, you know we we heard stories about that, but eventually kind of business caught up with them. It's just more of a focus now, and and I I think with the focus, in order to show improvement, you've got to be able to measure. So the the metrics are really important. They're they're setting metrics for you know years out for being say at net zero, but they've they've actually have to measure what their emissions are today and tomorrow to be able to determine you know how much they they are improving and can they actually hit those targets. I think some of the companies sincerely believe they can hit those targets. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a huge challenge with those companies getting to net zero. With without purchasing, say, a lot of carbon offset credits, which is 
you know, part of the part of the business right now with uh, purchasing carbon credits, right, to help bring their uh, credit score down to a to a net zero. I'm glad you mentioned carbon offsets, and uh, we didn't we didn't even discuss this topic beforehand. But if if it's okay with you, Rusty, I'm interested to get get your thoughts. When a company is purchasing carbon offsets, it I'm, I'm trying to phrase this in not too much of a negative way, but uh, it's easy to look at carbon offsets as kind of a tricky accounting gimmick, and and to kind of say, well, how valuable is a carbon offset? And and could you kind of tell us a little bit? Is there kind of a range of some carbon offsets are legitimately very good and and benefit society as a whole, and others are a little more hollow? What's your thoughts on on just carbon offsets in general? This is a very interesting topic, and I, I can't, can't claim to be an expert in it, but, you know, it was interesting enough, uh, the, the call before this, uh, I, I was on a very, very good call and discussion around, uh, you know, carbon offset and carbon credits, and I think the speaker was, was, was pretty, pretty well on. So, you know, if I can summarize a little bit of that and also what I know, it's an independent accounting tool to be able to monetize saving carbon. And since, since the oil and gas companies, you know, are basically in a upstream, midstream, downstream business, most of them, you know, upstream being finding and producing, midstream being the transportation of mostly pipelines, and the downstream, you know, the refining for the oils and natural gas and gasoline products and jet fuels that they make, they're big emitters. I mean, they, you know, everybody recognizes that. So I like to look at it as an opportunity to get better and to clean up their operation because we can, uh, you know, put scrubbers on, on the stacks and, and remove the CO2 and sequester the CO2 or, or make it into a different type of, of product. Even if they, you know, are able to do as, as much as they're trying to do in the years ahead, they're going to probably have to buy carbon offsets and carbon offset credits to be able to get their scores down because they, they just can't get low enough without, without purchasing them. So there's a scramble right now, you know, where's the source of carbon credits? And there's, there's not enough of them, but, you know, it's a growing source. And then the cost of those credits, right, are going up. So in a way, it's a tax on the producers because, you know, now they have to pay increasing amounts of money for for these carbon offsets. And it's going to be higher, you know, a few years from now than it is right now. But, you know, some of the examples are, and some of them are good ones, right? Some of them you have to kind of maybe blink a couple times, but, you know, they're, they're, you know, shutting down, you know, some coal mines because you have methane gas emitting from coal mines or some of the vents that they established to be able to, to do the mining. Uh, you know, livestock is one of the topics with with methane emissions. Uh, you know, some of the carbon offset credits come from, you know, don't cut down trees that you plan to cut down for, for this purpose or that purpose. And then establishing, you know, renewable energy sources like wind farms or or solar farms instead of um, you know having oil or natural gas to generate electricity or just some of the examples that are being used for their carbon offset credits 
That makes sense. And it, I mean, it sounds like there is just a really wide spectrum of what a carbon offset can be. I'm in a few different focus groups with other certified financial planners that own investment firms. And, uh, you know, there there has been there have been cases this hasn't happened, you know, in our in our firm, uh, but there have been cases where clients of other investment firms have been contacted uh, by a company trying to purchase carbon offsets. And this uh, particular person was contacted because they happen to own a lot of land that has a lot of trees. And the person was not planning on cutting down these trees anyway. And Corporation X wanted to write them a small check to not cut down their trees, which was already, you know, they weren't going to cut down the trees for a long period of time. And so, you know, it's examples like that that feel just kind of like, a well, Company X is paying individual Y to do something that individual Y is already going to do that has nothing to do with company X. For me, it kind of spoils the legitimacy, right, of of what the industry needs to do and what the direction should be instead of, you know, making things up, uh, if if that's how you want to describe it, right, to to gain some uh, offset credits that that they can then use to, to improve their score. So, but right now, I mean, you know, those are the rules and, and you know how it goes. People, when you set out the rules, people follow, you know, the rules. And right now, you know, not cutting down trees is, is part of it. But I don't, I'm not a big supporter of, 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 of that aspect of it. I think that's such a good point. And one, you know, where we're going to eventually get to with this conversation is what are some things that and what are some just brainstorming what are, what are ways that ESG could be better and what are ways that it could cuz I, I you know this it's such a politicized topic and it's easy to have a conversation about ESG and immediately you know have it be a little bit of a polarized debate but there's also there's some parts of ESG that 90% of people look at and and think hey we could we could we could sharpen this and there is you know a weak spot here um and so yeah, I think that's a great thought, and, and we'll certainly get into that topic here in a second. Rusty, if it's, if it's okay with you, I'm interested to go back to Russia, China, Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, you mentioned that it is, you know, it, they're playing on a little bit of a different playing field, and it is a little bit easier for them to produce um, some forms of energy that are more difficult for U.S., Europe, and, and regions that are closely adhering to ESG standards. Well, first of all, you know, I think the the pessimist would look at this scenario and say, well, hey, if the whole world is not going to adhere to environmental standards, then we're all sharing one world here. Aren't we kind of spinning our wheels if we're going to play by one standard, but a massive part of the world is just going to ignore it? Yeah, I'm glad you, you know, brought out the topic and, you know, both of us, I think, can contribute to this podcast and, you know, in, in this space. But uh, I'm a big believer that, you know, we're breathing the same air, right? And to some extent, we're fishing in the same ocean waters that are, you know, circulating. Everybody's responsible here and everybody needs to do their part. Now, you know, the Paris Accord, which which a lot of people default to, and I should have probably read up more on the Paris Accord before we had this podcast, but I'll let the listeners kind of do that, make, make some of their own decisions. You know, ha- my understanding is how they wrote that. It, it's not an even playing field, right? They're putting more of the burden on the developing country, on the developed countries, 
and the quote unquote developing countries like, you know, China, et cetera, you know, get a big pass on what they're able to do. And, and countries like China and India are really big polluters of, of our earth, our air, our water. And a lot of the electrical power that gets generated in those countries is from coal. And coal, you know, although, you know, maybe 150 years ago in our country, you know, started out as a, as a resource, we, we quickly converted oil over to oil and then natural gas. And our, our CO2 emissions, and this is, you know, these are, this is data you can find just about anywhere. I'll be glad to forward it to any, any, any listener is, you know, our CO2 emissions as a country, USA, have gradually reduced year by year since about 2005. And it's largely because we started phasing out coal-fired electrical power plants and replaced them with natural gas-fired power plants. So our CO2 emissions are down from 2005 on a steady stream, and we're at about the 1990 level right now. Now, you know, half of the CO2 emissions in in the world are, are caused by coal-fired power plants. And and there's there's not a big you know change that's 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 uh, undergoing right now to change that trajectory. So if we could do more on a worldwide basis to eliminate the coal uh, power plants, we we would make a you know more significant win in the CO2 emission space then try and electrify everything here in the United States and, you know, paying a heavy price for the cost of all this conversion. Some of it's good and some of it's needed, but these mandates that are occurring, you know, state by state, uh, in some cases even at the federal level, are are really going to hurt our economy. That makes a great deal of sense. And, uh, you know, I'm interested when you talk about the landscape being different across different regions, different countries. Um, obviously, there is a lot going on geopolitically in Eastern Europe right now. Um, and besides the war in Ukraine, we're also on the brink of, of a potential energy crisis. And we may not be on the brink. It may already be here. Um, and so I'm interested is it fair? I, I think a, I think an ESG pessimist could could look at the current situation and they could say, "Hey, ESG has kind of got a, gotten us to this situation where Europe is really vulnerable, and now they're in an energy crisis." What are your thoughts there? Is it fair to partly blame ESG for for some of those shortcomings that Europe is now experiencing? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you bring up this topic, and and not all the listeners are going to agree, but maybe it'll make them think a little bit, right? And maybe that's what the purpose of these podcasts kind of are. I made a few LinkedIn posts, you know, over the last six months or so, to basically support, you know, what what you summarized. That really Western Europe backed themselves into a corner with their policies that that they formed. You know, going back to 10 years ago, it's been a gradual uh, slippery slope for them, you know, going all green, uh, doing away with oil and gas uh, as, a, as a natural resource base. And they've largely failed even before the war in Ukraine. Their energy costs were starting to get out of control with just depending more and more on wind and solar, which I think could, can be part of the mix. But the mandate that, you know, it has to be renewables 
is this the poor direction to grow to go? And then when the you know Ukraine war hit, it just emphasized that point you know even more because most of the natural gas that Germany and Western Europe receives comes from Russia. So they were improving their carbon scores in part because they weren't producing oil and gas, but they were importing it and improving their scores and saying, well, you know, we import this natural gas, but what we're really uh, generating here locally is are, are more and more green energy sources, na- namely wind. And it's always been a fear that look, Russia, you know, they're they're not a fair player, right? They're they're a very they're a very evil empire. And I think if you're in Ukraine right now, you'd probably agree. You know, if you're out of Ukraine, you might be have mixed opinions. But they've they've been terrible, you know, uh, to the Ukrainian people. And now that they've predictably, uh, I think predictably, you know cut off Nord Stream 1, which was, you know, has been in operation for for quite a number of years, not only to Germany, but, you know, different parts of Western Europe, uh, they, they've, they've cut it off. And and they were fit, trying to fill their, their natural gas reserves, which is a normal process, even here in the United States, right? We produce natural gas during the course of the year or import it and put it in strategic reserves. Uh, usually underground caverns, salt domes sometimes. And because our, our energy usage for natural gas goes up for the heating during the winter. And those reserves aren't filled. They, they actually filled them more than they thought they would. So they might make it through this winter without literally, you know, freezing to death. But it's it's unclear whether they'll make it through a winter. And largely it depends on whether it's going to be a cold winter or not. Certainly. And uh, yeah, I, I think they're in such a vulnerable position in many ways because they they don't have the power. They don't have control over their own energy sources um, to the degree that they would. They're importing a lot of LNG right now at a super high cost. And a lot of that's coming from the United States. So they're paying a huge, you know, uh, uplift because it, it, it costs a lot to convert natural gas to LNG. Then you have to Convert it again once once you get to the other side, back to natural gas. So it's it's a you know it's it's an expensive process, and those tankers are specialized uh, where they you know have to cool the natural gas to turn it into a liquid to be able to transport it. So there, there's a lot of costs associated with the LNG, and you know Europe's paying paying the price right now. Absolutely. And uh, it leads me into really the question that I'm most excited to get your thoughts on. And I, after I hear your thoughts, I want to give you some of my thoughts and have you give me some feedback on them. But uh, the, the, the most exciting question is, if you could change ESG, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, I think 90% of people, Republicans and Democrats, can agree that there are some big faults with ESG. So if you could change some things with it to make it a long-term positive force, what parts of it would you change? Like you say, both, both sides, you know, if we're talking politics and there's people in the middle too, but, you know, I, I think everyone kind of embraces ESG. It's, it's at what cost to not only themselves, but to their country and the economy. And, and it's not explained really well by our leadership, right? You know, we, we, we don't have good leaders right now, unfortunately. They're very politicized. And 
they're they're providing you know people misinformation. They're they're twisting the truth a lot. In some cases, not telling the truth to get their political agenda through instead of getting some rational leaders in place that understand some aspects of the science, some aspects of the economy, and of course an appreciation for what you know ESG can do and the direction that we need to go with ESG so we don't go backwards, right? I think there's a risk that if you try to push too hard and mandate you know, too many green energy sources, it's going to backfire. And we're already starting to see that right now, right? There, there's not enough uh, lithium being produced in the world to make all the lithium batteries for the EVs. And we're going to have huge supply chain management disruptions with the EV market, not only for the, you know, for the batteries that aren't going to be able to be produced, but for other, some of the other components that depend on rare, uh, valuable metals. And, and the mining industry is having to jumpstart and produce, you know, I was looking at some data right before this podcast, depends on what, what metals you're really talking about, right? Lithium, magnesium, or manganese, and there's cobalt. There's a few key components in the EV sector. They're, they're going to have to increase by anywhere from two to 10 times to meet the market demands. And, and that's going to be very disruptive to the environment, even if you can find those deposits, because a lot of it is surface mining. And some of those mines are not in very nice countries. So they've got, you know, they don't have child labor laws and they don't have environmental laws like the United States. So we might buy our shiny new EV that might be colored green, but you have to dig down into the layers of where those products came from and what ESG components you can trace back to where those countries are that produce those raw materials and and that picture isn't being explained very well yeah absolutely um that makes a that makes a ton of sense and here's my two cents on on one 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 thing that you know maybe controversial maybe some people love it maybe some people don't i think one way to make esg better is focus on the e and instead of instead of lowering carbon footprint um remove carbon offsets potentially entirely so so maybe it's not a measure of of carbon activity but instead it's a measure of we are going to use this amount of fossil fuels so you get rewarded you get a plus esg score if it is produced, manufactured, delivered, upstream, midstream, downstream, the whole process, if it's done with higher standards. Yeah, I think that should be the focus, right? Reward the credible operators that are out there, uh, you know, producing hydrocarbons in a credible way without emitting or at least lowering their emissions in the refining sector, right? Trying to recover all their CO2 sequestering at beneath the ground and not try to just do this mass substitution, which uh, we're, we're just not ready for is, is an economy or even on the raw material side, but it's gonna come to a huge cost to the, to the individuals and the taxpayers and not everybody are gonna be able to afford this cost of change at the rapid pace that it's going at right now. Certainly. And, you know, you take it a step further and in reality, there's the desire for rapid change and actions are, are happening to try and move toward rapid change, but rapid change isn't actually happening. 
demand for fossil fuels isn't actually going down at all. And so if we need the same amount, producing and, and the entire process being done with higher standards seems like a win for everyone. It's a win for everyone. And, you know, if you look at these developing countries, right, they're most likely, unless there's some huge technology innovation breakthroughs that really aren't on the horizon uh, for, for uh, I know some, some companies are, you know, trying to come up with different kind of batteries and they eventually might get there. But, you know, these developing countries are, are going to be using fossil fuels in their transportation system and in their manufacturing base. We would be a leapfrog ahead if we could just get some of these co uh, countries off using coal and getting them to switch to, to natural gas and reducing the CO2 emissions and improving you know, the ESG scores for, for everyone. Absolutely. Uh, and it is interesting to me to see some of what's happening in Europe. Uh, you know, when you have an ESG conversation, you know, I think there's extremes on both sides of the aisle that, that will have opinions on it. And it's easy to, to, for some people to say, well, you know, this is a disaster. It's going in the wrong direction. But I do think that almost everyone in the world is concerned at some level on the E part. Everyone is concerned on the environmental part because we no longer want to tear down entire forests and produce energy that way. But it's also ironic that, well, that's exactly what part of Europe is doing right now. Um, it, it, it has regressed. It's regressed. Yeah. I think if you go too fast, you're actually going to see regression instead of progression. And I'm kind of with you, right? The, the, the E is something that everybody can rally behind. And, uh, you know, not only for the time period we're here, but, you know, for, and I know you've got kids, right? I've, I've got kids that are now adults and, you know, grandkids. So, you know, we, we, we want this earth to be a, a good place to live. But, you know, the data on, on like even the CO2 emissions is, is getting not publicized very well. And, uh, you know, we've made great strides and progress here in the United States. Yet for some reason, right, we continue to get punished by saying, oh, not good enough. So no matter what we do, right, it's not good enough. And I'm OK for making progression, but it shouldn't be at a huge cost to us when these other countries are just looking the other way and we're breathing the same air. Absolutely. And uh, I want to finish by, by taking a, a minute or two and, and wrapping up and giving my thoughts on, on why we do not include ESG funds in our portfolios right now. Um, and so what I want to do is it's easy to view this with a political lens. It's e easy to view this uh, with an environmental lens, but I want to instead view it from a, hey, I own a registered investment advisory firm. Uh, people pay me to be a fiduciary and build portfolios and properly manage portfolios. So I'm just going to spend 60 seconds, take you under the hood of, of why we don't um, include ESG funds in our portfolio right now. And the quick thoughts on that are, I do see enormous holes. Um, I do see it as a as a politicized tool when it really should not be. I think the uh, the last twelve months have also unearthed unearthed the fact that hey, you know, Europe went down this road and now they are doing things that even the most right winged 
you know, oil and gas person would look at and say, what in the world are you doing? And their power sources are incredibly not clean right now. Um, and so it, it has experienced that regression. And so I think, I think to a certain extent, it's, it's really played a negative role and, and pushed us back. We will link to some of his work, but Oswath Damadoran is a professor at NYU Stern, and he has some excellent thoughts on ESG investing. But, you know, he makes the point that it's almost as if we're just taking the same amount of fossil fuels and we're pushing it behind the curtain and we're pretending as if it now no longer exists. And when you push something behind the curtain, a lot of times the standards are not nearly as high. And so those are some of the thoughts, but really, I want to really specific, get the investment glasses on now. One of my beefs, so iShares, Vanguard, every massive um, asset manager across the globe has some sort of ESG offering for the most part. And uh, one thing we talk about with, with fund selection, so if you're building a portfolio and you're looking at an ETF or a mutual fund, you always want to watch out for, is this a closet index fund? So is this a actively managed ETF or mutual fund where uh, the provider might charge 1% as a management fee every year on it, but in reality, it looks 97% the same as IVV, which is iShares S&P 500 index ETF. And in many ways, ESG can have a lot of that. It can be a very similar wrapper and it can, it can look a whole, I mean, it, it can look real similar to an index and you might just be paying 0.6% instead of 0.05%. And, you know, quick math on this. Hey, if you've got, if you've got a $5 million portfolio in the expense ratio on your funds are 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3, 0.4% higher, we're now talking about thousands of, and thousands of dollars in investment costs. And I think that uh, there's got to be some changes made to even begin to come close to warranting a higher price in a portfolio. And so, you know, when we think about, well, what's the right decision from the investment firm? What, what would a fiduciary do um, as, as we build, monitor, manage a portfolio? And uh, we've come to the conclusion that, that we cannot warrant um, the additional fees and that the benefit is not there um, for the additional costs that are always passed down to the end investor. And that's a, that's, a, that's a long rambling answer, but I want to include that in this podcast. So, so you're seeing the added cost even on the, you know, that aspect of the investment side, uh, which, is, which is an interesting take on this. It really is. And it's something to consider. You know, you think about a company like iShares. If they can move clients from IVV, which is a pure S&P 500 fund, if they can move them from that to an ESG version of U.S. large cap space, and if they can charge 0.4% instead of 0.04%, that moves the needle in a big way. That's a, that's a moneymaker for iShares, but it's not necessarily in the best interest of the end investor. Right. We're, we're seeing the same thing on the investment side of these uh, smaller startups. You know, the renewable transitional energy startups are, are getting very high premiums compared to, say, you know, oil and gas uh, advanced technologies that are just getting overlooked and, and not even funded. And, uh, you know, it's where the investment community is at right now, unfortunately. That is fascinating. And it, it, what it, when you say that, it kind of reminds me of all of those graphs that uh, really were popular in 2019 to 2021, when you would see, you know, Netflix, Salesforce, or a random tech company is now 10 times the market capitalization of ExxonMobil or Chevron. 
and you're just thinking, boy, how is that possible? Right. You're lucky if, you know, one of them, you know, gets to one of those evaluations in a, in a portfolio bundle. And, and many of them, you know, may never become commercialized. But, you know, a lot of money is being invested in some of these startup companies that if they had the oil and gas label, you know, would be much, much lower uh, for, for the investor. Very interesting. Um, yeah, really appreciate that perspective. And uh, Rusty, as we as we close here at the end, uh, where can our listeners find you? You mentioned that you make some posts on LinkedIn. Yeah, you, you can find me in a number of different places. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me under under my name. I go by Rusty, but my real name's John. Uh, last name obviously is Gilbert. I've got a website, um, jrgilbertenergy.com. You can you can find me there. And, uh, you know, be, I'll be glad to interact with you if you got some questions or you want my perspective on something, be glad to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rusty. Really enjoyed chatting with you. And uh, to our listeners, if uh, you have questions or ideas for future episodes, uh, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.